I invite you to take out your Bibles once again and turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. For those of you that may not have a Bible with you, we have them in the pew racks, and if you need a larger print version, there's a few large print versions, and Dan can get it into your hand. The last few days, I've enjoyed uh, watching uh, football games uh, in person and on TV, and I'm always interested in how commentators, um, what they say as the game is unfolding, and uh, oftentimes uh, an offensive drive that doesn't go anywhere, they will say um, something like, well, they, they came up empty, or, or they, um, uh, they're walking away empty on this drive. But the same thing is about, uh, they say it, baseball. Um, I enjoy the fact that we live in a metropolitan area with a professional baseball team, and it's great to be able to go over to Great American Ballpark and, and to watch um, batters uh, walk up to the plate and watch uh, probably what's going on in the pitcher's minds as he's planning that they've scouted uh, the batter. Um, and, you know, sometimes you hear, you see that that batter, he comes away empty. He, he walks away empty. He comes away without a hit. He strikes out or he flies the ball out to left field. Well, today we're going to see the preacher, uh, the author of Ecclesiastes, the, the main character. He, he's going to come up to the plate, so to speak, and he's going to ask the question. And he asked this just at the very beginning. We saw this a few weeks ago. What does man gain? It's a great question. Specifically, he says, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? We read that in verse 3 of chapter 1. Well, in our text today, we'll see the, the preacher uh, face the pitcher and take a look at, at three pitches, as it were, pleasure, wisdom, and toil. And with each one, we'll see the preacher swing and miss. And we'll hear the umpire finally say, strike three, you're out. But is the preacher really out? The other day, a man came into the uh, church, a resident of Bellevue that I've been getting to know a little bit, and I wanted to give him a tour of the building, and I made the comment that when we purchased the building, we got everything in the building. And one of the things we got in the building was this thing in the pastor's study that says, baseball is like church. Many attend, but few understand. Many attend, but few understand. Well, by God's grace, all of us who are attending today will grow in our understanding. And to that end, let's ask the Lord to help us. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word. Indeed, as we just sang, it is a chart and a compass that will lead us to Jesus. It will lead us home. Father, we are blind unless you open our eyes. We are deaf and cannot hear unless you open our ears. And so, Father, would you be pleased to do that? Open our closed minds. Give us understanding. Would you warm our cold hearts and help us to more fully embrace Jesus as he's offered in the gospel. For we pray in his name. 
Amen. Well, before we go forward in Ecclesiastes, we need to step back for a moment and get the big picture and consider briefly where we've been so far. As I've been saying, Ecclesiastes will help us stay anchored in our calling to live by faith in Jesus Christ and not by sight in a fallen world, a world that we all know and we just heard in view of some prayer requests that's full of sin and misery, full of frustration and futility, full of confusion and chaos. Ecclesiastes will help us find, maintain, and strengthen an eternal perspective rather than what's so easy for us, a temporal perspective on life. Ecclesiastes will help us increase our recognition that the there and then of heaven should and indeed can influence the here and now of life on earth. As I've been saying, Ecclesiastes in many ways could be considered an extended commentary on Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Um, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Ecclesiastes will help us observe the world around us and ask, I've been saying the right questions, that's a little presumptuous, maybe better questions. It'll help us gain and maintain an eternal Godward perspective. In a word, Ecclesiastes will help us distinguish between the temporary and the eternal and live accordingly. Ecclesiastes presents the necessity of fearing God in a fallen world and a frequently confusing and frustrating world. Ecclesiastes wants us to see wants us to know that life without God is empty. But as we will even begin to see today, life with God is fulfilling. It's important to say again, we can't just use the lens of the Old Testament as we look at Ecclesiastes. We have to see it through the lens of the New Testament. Remember when Jesus instructs his disciples The night he was betrayed, the day before his crucifixion, he says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, you'll have trouble. But take heart, Jesus says, I have overcome the world. What does Jesus say? He says, in the world around you, you'll have trouble. It's vanity. In me, you'll have peace you'll have sanity. Ecclesiastes will help us all, individually, as families, and together as a church, to take heart, to take courage, to be of good cheer, because it will direct us, first and foremost, to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, the one who makes us sane when we come to faith in him, and who keeps us sane as we follow him all our days. When we began this, we look at the big, a few weeks ago, we, we looked at the beginning and the ending, the bookends, as it were, that holds the book together. And this is very important. We, we had to start from both the beginning and the ending in order to make sense of anything going forward. Remember, he begins saying, all is vanity. What it means is all is like a mist, a vapor. It, it's like a breath. It's fleeting. It's empty. And at the end, what does he say? He proclaims again, all is vanity. But he also helps us 
know that in Ecclesiastes, there are going to be words of pleasure, words of delight. They're going to be words of pain, words that are going to hurt us and convict us. Ecclesiastes will help provide perspective. And what is that perspective? Fear God and keep his commandments. And Ecclesiastes will call us to prepare for death and judgment. In the end, Ecclesiastes will help us to be able to see the end of the matter. And in so doing, will help us, as it were, to live life backwards. A couple of weeks ago, when we made some observations under the sun, we asked the question, or we saw the question asked again, what does man gain? And the preacher observed the natural order and the human experience. And he says, all things are full of weariness. And it's a setup for the rest of the book where he acknowledges that there is a longing for something new and for something lasting. And last week when we joined the preacher on setting out on a quest, remember the preacher says basically two things. I've seen everything and I'm a wise man. And we saw his quest was humanistic. He went out by himself. It was comprehensive. It covered everything. It was unsuccessful. He hadn't found what he was looking for. And it was certainly self-centered. It was for himself. And if you were like me, reading this, you kind of felt worse after reading it than you did before. But interestingly, in feeling worse, the preacher is actually achieving his purpose in showing us all that life under the sun, life here and now, life without God in the picture, just on earth in a fallen and sinful world, life under the sun is vanity and a striving after the wind. You see, the preacher is setting the reader up for God to enter the picture, for God to enter the conversation. And that brings us now to chapter 2. Our text is long, and so we'll let the preacher do most of the talking with a few comments here and there. And our approach to the text will be to consider it as if the preacher was a baseball player coming up to bat and taking a look at three pitches. He wants to get a hit. He wants to get on base. Let's find out how he does, because the first pitch is pleasure. The first pitch is pleasure. Look at verses 1 through 11 with me. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves 
and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the children of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasures, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained other under the sun. The first pitch is pleasure. Notice his resolve right at the beginning. He's having an internal discussion with himself. He's a thinking man. You know, sometimes I think we say, well, you just don't think. Well, no, Solomon, the preacher, he's a thinking man. And right up at the beginning, it's called the bottom line up front, the bluff. Right at the beginning is his conclusion. We see that in the second half of verse 1 into 2. This also was vanity. Right at the beginning. We don't even have to go far. He says it's vanity. Now we've heard this before. He describes laughter, jovialness. It's, It's mad. After pursuing pleasure, he's like, what use is it? He then gives his detailed account. And you heard that from verses 3 through 10. Solomon basically says, I've been there. I've done that. I've been everywhere. I've done everything. He takes us on a guided tour of an urgent effort to acquire things outwardly in what he sees, inwardly in what his heart delights in. We see and heard a catalog of what he went after. Now, this is autobiographical, right? Autobiographical, biographical. He says, I, right? But did you hear? It wasn't just I at the beginning, maybe I in the middle, and I at the end. It was everywhere. I, 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 me, 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 for myself, for myself, for myself. I mean, either intentionally or unintentionally, Solomon is once again saying, I'm on this quest by myself, for myself. Now step back just a moment. Every human is sort of on a quest by himself, by herself, and apart from God's intervention for himself or for for herself. In this quest, the preacher takes his reader, takes us on numerous attempted avenues of pleasure. But he's going to conclude, of course, that they're all dead ends. They they promise, but they don't deliver. And here we're seeing the paradox of hedonism, the love of pleasure. The paradox is this, the more one searches for pleasure... And if that's the goal, and if that's the aim, the less one finds. 
Haven't we all found that to be the case? We see something, we go after it, and it doesn't deliver. It doesn't, pro- it, it promises, but it doesn't fulfill the promise. We find it empty. We find it, as he says often, like it's chasing the wind. And then even though he gave the conclusion up front, the bottom line up front here in verse 11, we see this conclusion repeated. Behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. Well, if vanity, as we've been seeing, is more like mist, vapor, breath, smoke that's here and then gone, isn't it interesting that right after vanity you have striving after the wind just to reinforce it? And who of us can catch wind in our hands? It's a a good illustration. He answers the question that he raised in what in, in, in verse 3 of chapter 1. What is to be gained? And you know what the answer he comes to? Nothing. He didn't fail because he didn't try hard. He didn't fail because he somehow ran out of money. He failed because pleasure couldn't satisfy. But with this first pitch, he swings and he misses, and the umpire signals a strike. Well, the second pitch is is wisdom. He's going to revisit this topic that he addressed in chapter 1, verses 13 through 18. So let's read about this second pitch, wisdom, verses 12 through 17. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then, I, why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after the wind. Now here he's trying to find meaning in the achievements that wisdom helps to bring. And to be sure, as he says, wisdom is greater than folly and light is greater than darkness. I mean, if you have a choice... Choose wisdom, not foolishness. If you have a choice, choose the light and not the darkness. But there's a big problem. What's the problem? The problem is, as we heard in some of our prayer requests, that death comes to everyone. It's the problem of death. 
You see, neither wisdom nor folly can solve the problem. The same event, he says, happens to all of them. There is, with death, no enduring remembrance. You are long forgotten. Death, the great unmentionable, the the great attempt to avoid, but it's coming to all of us sooner or later. It's the problem of sin. It's the wages of sin is death. It's the fall of man into sin. And on that day, you will surely die spiritually in that the relationship between God and man was ripped apart and physically they begin a descent to no longer live forever. And what's his response to the problem of death? What's his response to the realization that even though wisdom is a good thing, it's not an ultimate thing? What's his response? Look at verse 17. I hated life. You know, the Bible is utterly realistic, isn't it? I mean, here, just like we see in the Psalms, what can miserable Christians sing? The Psalms. We acknowledge the rough and tumble and the confusing and perplexing aspects of life. And his response, I hated life. For those of you that have ever for a moment thought that or even said that, you've got some good company. The wisest, wealthiest man could say that as well. And his conclusion, look how he concludes once again. All is vanity and a striving after wind. This is the man who was known who was given the gift of wisdom, but here you just don't hear God in the picture yet. He concludes, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. Well, it's another swing and another miss. Strike two. He is 0-2. The count is 0-2. He's behind and the pressure mounts. The third pitch is on the way and the third pitch is toil. It's labor its work. Join with me as I read, beginning in verse 18 through 23. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils under the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. He's already said he hates life. And now he says he hates toil. He hates the labor. He hates the work. Why? Why would someone say that? It's because after 
they labor and serve and work and toil. Guess what? He doesn't get to keep anything that he worked for. Nothing that he worked so hard to acquire to achieve. Someone else does. Years ago, I um, would have interesting discussions with one of my brothers, and we would often talk about the unfairness of life. The unfair. Anybody ever thought about life as being unfair? You know, we talk about equity and equality, but fairness, fairness. This is a great example of something that's unfair, right? You work, you labor, you toil, and you've got to give it up. You don't just give it up by going into a dump and nobody gets to use it. It's worse. Somebody else gets to use it. I heard someone recently tell me that um, he learned and it helped him uh, with life that, that what he was doing at work was making his wife's second husband very wealthy. It gave him a perspective that all his toil, all his labor, everything he was going to earn was going to go to somebody else. And you know what that recognition did? It helped him. It enabled him to relax and enjoy and work hard, but work for the glory of God and work to care for his wife more than work for himself. The preacher here reveals a heart given up, given over to despair. Again, I hated life. Look what he says in verse 20. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of the labors under the sun. What an encouraging statement. Why is that encouraging? Because we're not alone when we battle despair. The wisest, richest man battles despair. He, he gave his heart over to despair. Have you ever done that? Have you ever taken the keys, as it were, to your heart and say, despair, it's all yours. And that's after you've traveled through discouragement, right? You're at the point of despair. Been there, done that, says Solomon. And did you notice every odd-numbered verse, verse 19, verse 21, verse 23, vanity, 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 the trinity of vanity. And it's not only vanity, but what do we read in verse 21? It's a great evil as well. It's not just unfair. It's not just sad. It's a great evil. And notice in his description, it is comprehensive. Our days and our nights are sorrowful, are vexing and restless. Look how verse 23 ends. This also is vanity. And so the umpire yells, strike three, you're out. But is he? Because here comes for the first time in Ecclesiastes, the first positive message. It's a new perspective. It's a new view of life. Instead of being just life under the sun, all of a sudden, kind of without any warning, we are given this perspective of life over the sun. 
Let's read verses 24 and 25. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Here, the preacher says, God is generous. God shows up now on the scene. And how is God described as generous? He's giving the gift of enjoying kind of some some normal things of life, eating, drinking, work. It's common grace, right? Who can enjoy their work? Who can enjoy a good meal? Believer and unbeliever alike. God is gracious. God is generous. But beginning... In verse 26, we will see that this is over as quickly as it begins. It it sounds like this good news that's intruded can't last. Because once again, notice how he concludes. Verse 26, For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. There it is for the third time. Vanity, all is vanity, and everything is a striving after the wind, even after the new perspective shows up. You see, the preacher takes a swing at each of these three pitches, pleasure, wisdom, work, and he's come up empty. He's come away empty. You see, he's showing us in life, neither pleasure nor wisdom nor work can satisfy. And notice the spectrum. On the one hand, You've got somebody who pursues pleasure. It doesn't satisfy. On the other hand, you've got somebody that pursues hard work and labor and is diligent. And it doesn't satisfy. And in the middle between pleasure and work is wisdom. A practical life. You've got the active life. You've got the contemplative life and the active life. And... and, and, and There's nothing. It's vanity. It's empty. None can fulfill despite giving up his heart up to despair and encountering sorrow, vexation, and restlessness. Notice Solomon is not going to give up. He's not going to give up. He's coming to the point of giving up, but he doesn't. Why? Because he's now being able to see even just a glimpse Life that's not just under the sun, but over the sun, so to speak. Well, as we wrap up, I want to address briefly two questions raised by our text. One fairly direct and the other fairly indirect. Look at verse 22. Here's the direct question. What ha- what? Has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? 
What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? In other words, what does he gain? What profit is there? You know, it sounds very similar to the question Jesus asked. It's recorded in all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in Matthew, we read, in Matthew eight thirty six, Jesus says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? Solomon, the preacher, was trying to gain the whole world. And Jesus recognizes that it's not just Solomon, but it's all of us that attempt to do that. And what's the question, the indirect question? Well, it's how chapter 2 ends. Who is the one who pleases God? It's kind of mentioned twice in there. For to the one who pleases him, only to the give to the one who pleases God. Who is that person who pleases God? Well, thankfully, God's word gives us answers. To the first question, the answer is nothing. What does a man get from all his toil? And striving of heart, nothing. What, what profits a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? Nothing. But recall what comes before those words in Mark 8. In verse 34 we read this, And Jesus called to him the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Jesus there makes the statement and then he asks the question, what profit if a man gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? And to the second question, Scripture makes clear that the one who pleases God is the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. For without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. You see, my friends, in Ecclesiastes, the preacher is letting us know that apart from God... There is no everlasting enjoyment. He sets us up to know for sure that in God's presence there is fullness of joy and there are pleasures forevermore, pleasures that don't end but go on forever. You see, Ecclesiastes is setting us up for the coming of Jesus who as Emmanuel, God with us. It's through faith in him, what do we have? We have life, and we have life abundantly. The thief came to steal, to kill, and destroy. But Jesus came. Jesus' advent, arrival on the scene, That for all of us who have hated life, all of us who have been given over to despair and ready to give up with three strikes, 
we hear Jesus say, come to me, find rest in me, because in coming to me, you will have life and you will have it to the full. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this book that's in your scriptures. We thank you that even though it may be hard initially to understand, it nonetheless serves its great purpose in showing us that apart from you, our life truly is empty. But with you, through faith in Jesus Christ, Life, even in a sinful, frustrating, fallen, confusing, chaotic world. The, li- the life that we have in Christ, the new life, is life to the full. Oh, Father, be pleased through your word and by your spirit to encourage your people. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.